Hello, and welcome to the Beyond Boundaries podcast, a podcast where we interview faculty, students, staff, and alums of the Beyond Boundaries series of courses and the Beyond Boundaries program at Washington University in St. Louis. In this podcast, we aim to reach across the digital divide and highlight engaging stories told by Beyond Boundaries faculty and students at WashU and their ideas for future work and play. We hope to give you a window into what Beyond Boundaries is, featuring the next generation of interdisciplinary thinkers and collaborators whose aim is to leverage curiosity across disciplines in an effort to solve some of the most complex and challenging problems we face in the world today. My name is Rob Morgan, and I am the director of the Beyond Boundaries program at WashU and a teaching professor in the area of design and the performing arts department. Enjoy the show. My guests today are Professors Mark Valeri and John Anazu. Professors Valeri and Anazu are co-teaching an exciting new Beyond Boundaries class called Religious Freedom in America. Um, and so I'm uh, inviting them on the podcast to speak a little bit about that, their backgrounds at WashU, uh, and maybe a bit of advice they have for their first year college selves. Um, but uh, quickly, I want to kind of get through the uh, introductions of each of them. Um, professor John Anazu is the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion and Professor of Political Science. Uh, and uh, Professor Mark Valeri is the Interim Director of Religious Studies. He is the Reverend Priscilla Wood Neves, Neves uh, Distinguished Professor of Religion and Politics. Uh, they both have a uh, affiliation with the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. And I'm really great, great uh, glad that both of you are uh, on the podcast today. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Rob. Good to be with you. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, um, Rob, wonderful to be with you. Oh, good. I'm so glad that you've had the time this morning to talk. Um, so uh, I'd love to kind of just talk to you a little bit about your, how long you've been at WashU and your background a little bit, a bit of perhaps on the research that you are involved in. Sure, Mark, why don't you want to start? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll go. This is this will be my sixth year at WashU. Uh, I came here from Virginia where I was teaching at a place called Union Theological Seminary where I did uh, early American religious history. Um, Grew up a West Coast boy, uh, went to school in the West Coast, and then uh, graduate school uh, in the East Coast, and uh, taught for many years on the West Coast, then in Virginia, and then when the call came to WashU to uh, be engaged in this new adventure called the Center for the Study of Religion and Politics, I was uh, happy to do that because I'm an early American religious historian write about religion and the American Revolution, religion and the making of capitalism, uh, foundational issues, and this was a, a perfect place for me to be. So I'm delighted to be here. Nice, nice. That was, you said it was six and years I've been ago. Here. That was six years ago, six is that correct? Ago. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Professor yeah, Nazu. Yeah. Yeah, so um, even though I've been here longer, Mark is more senior to me. I need to make clear that point here. <laughs> but but I, I've been at Washington. He, uh, he, he means I'm older. He means that I'm older. <laughs> <laughs> and if you take our class, that will definitely come out in the dialogue. We have, we have different uh, generational senses of technology. <laughs> oh, oh, John. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, so this is my ninth year at WashU. Uh, I came from a visiting professorship at Duke, and before that I was practicing law, and uh, I, uh, my, my academic training is in both law and political theory, and I focus 
largely on the First Amendment, and my, my core scholarly work is on the First Amendment's right of assembly, so think about everything from protest to how churches meet and gather, and so there's a relationship there to more core law and religion issues as well. So a lot of my writing is, is either in the area of the First Amendment or in the areas of, of law and religion. And then teaching-wise, I teach courses on those subjects in the law school and to undergraduates. I teach criminal law to law students. And I, uh, from an earlier version of this podcast, some, some of you know I teach law, race, and design with Professor Penina Laker in Beyond Boundaries as well. So the teaching is kind of all, more all over the map, and the research is largely First Amendment and related questions of difference and pluralism. Got it. Got it. And how do you both know each other? Did the idea for the for the course, uh, was it a happenstance kind of elevator kind of conversation that started it? Only well, we both, we're both, yeah, sure. we're both a, have, a, have faculty appointments in the Danforth Center, so we met that way. Uh, but we also met because uh, Mark and his wife rented our house from us during the first year of their uh, time to wash you. It, it happened to coincide with uh, a sabbatical for me and my family. So we were at the University of Virginia, and the Valeries were coming to St. Louis. And so we started as landlord-tenant until Mark quickly usurped the power dynamic, and now um, now we're co-teaching. <laughs> Love it. So wait, if I understand that you were each landlords and tenants of each other, is that the way? Is, do I have that right? No, I've always been the tenant. John okay. has always been the landlord. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> but the, the 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 genesis of this class came about as we were, you know, talking in the in the center and realized we had a lot of mutual interests in uh, questions of. Uh, religious freedom and what that meant historically and legally to make that kind of division. And we came at it from two different perspectives, me as a historian and John as a political theorist and legal scholar. And there was a lot of stuff still playing out in the news that had to do with religious freedom issues. Uh, questions of uh, Supreme Court decisions like Hobby Lobby, lower court decisions, uh, cake bakers, questions that were fraught in American society. And so it was, it's, it was hard to avoid what the question of religious freedom meant, how had it changed over the last several decades. It was an interest that really, uh, an issue that really grabbed both of us, is, it's hard to miss. And so as we talked about that, uh, John was especially good in, in configuring how we could put this together into a course. Yeah. Uh, is, uh, it's, it's also the case that, um, that in, the, in law and constitutional law especially, the sub-area of law and religion and these kinds of issues we address in this course is one of the most uh, historically rich areas, and it's one of the areas where the courts turn to history more than other areas, but courts often don't know how to do history well, and, and uh, so there's a lot of uh, perhaps uh, sloppy use of history in this area, and, <laughs> and context is hard to understand, and then when you think about some of the cases and the issues, you often have uh, ideological sparring and uh, culture wars sorts of things where people will take historical narratives and position them 
largely and accurately to serve a cause or a, a purpose. And so one of the, to me, one of the real benefits of this course is we can dig in pretty carefully to the current contextual issues and then, and then look back to the history and ask really hard questions about whether some of the claims today really match the history that we know. Hmm. That's fascinating. And this course, if I understand correctly, existed in a different form as a sort of an upper division course at one time? Well, I think it was uh, uh, somewhere in between first-year uh -huh. course and upper division. They, they had Got some it. upper division students. Understood. Uh, but uh, it was exciting because to get a, a range of students, second, third, fourth-year students, uh, yeah. Some of them hope maybe planning to go to law school, others into political theory or political science or mm -hmm. governmental work. But then a lot of students just engaged in the issues, you know, yeah. biology, chemistry, engineering majors who were there. Uh, so it, it served as a general course in the, in the humanities, if you will. The humanities, meaning the, the historical study and how reading texts in their context can be uh, illuminating and open up all sorts of issues about big questions, the nature of human freedom, the nature of political association, its relation to historical crises at the moment. If I can say that's a humanities approach. And then John taking a, a little bit more of the political theory, social scientific, legal analysis combined with the historical yeah. investigation. Yeah, and that highlights, I think, what is so great about these Beyond Boundaries courses open to just first-year students um, is that they are co-taught by faculty across schools. Myself, I, I teach a class um, with my esteemed colleague, uh, Bruce Lindsay from Architecture, and I'm in Arts and Sciences. And and it's not uh, uncommon for us to sometimes disagree in front of the class, <laughs> which is fine, you know, that's life. Um, but I think it's so great that you all are, while you do share uh, appointments at the Danforth Center, you, you're coming at this, this issue from two different directions, as, as you just pointed out, Professor Valeri. Yeah, you know, one of the things I love about um, the way we've done this class in the past, and we'll continue this for the Beyond Boundaries version, is each day we we, we, we map out the semester and each day one of us is the primary speaker or lecturer to cover the substance, but we always allocate, I don't know, 10 or 12 minutes at the end of the class for the other person to respond. And it's always, it's usually off the cuff based on whatever that person is thinking, but it's from the different perspective to say, you know, as a historian, I'm wondering a little bit about this claim, or as a, I'll, say, I'll often say to Mark, tell me the relevance of the point you just said <laughs> to, to what we're talking about today. So it, it's a fun, and I think the fact that we keep it largely unscripted makes it, I think, more engaging in that, in that part of the class. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, I think uh, with us being artists, uh, myself and Professor Lindsay, um, we're a lot less organized. He just is more of a chief heckler. And, uh, and and when I'm talking, <laughs> and uh, and I'm the chief heckler when he's talking. But uh, uh, no, we have a good time together, and it's it's really makes for a conversational kind of instruction, which is I think, like you said, interesting for the students. Um, so uh, uh, this is just so great. So tell me a little bit more about um, your your backgrounds, uh, sort of your own educational backgrounds. Where where where'd you grow up? Um, where did you go to college and what were you studying at that point? 
anybody. Uh, uh, Professor Valeri, do you want to go first? Sure, sure. I, uh, I grew up in beautiful Los Angeles and uh, West Coast person. I started out going to a small college in Washington State called Whitworth College. Uh, I transferred from there to the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, being an in-state California student, it was actually in those days quite easy to, to um, transfer into the, into the state university there. And I was a pre-med major for my first couple of years, but when I landed in Berkeley, I had to take a humanities requirement course in history, and I absolutely was smitten by it. I, I just fell in love with the study of history and reading texts and thinking about big issues uh, of uh, human existence and uh, moral meaning, and I, I couldn't get enough of it. So I went from there to uh, Connecticut to Yale Divinity School to study theology, sort of the highest questions, if you will, uh, the nature of cosmic existence and uh, questions about God and sin and redemption and all of those things in a very academically uh, powerful setting that was exciting to me. But by the end of that time, I realized that I really was a historian more than a theologian and so I went to Princeton University, where I got a PhD on in early American religious history. Uh, religion in the American Revolution is what I wrote about. And so since then, I've always been focused on how religious thought and practice relates or related to social issues, the economy, politics, common life in early America. That's fascinating. I, it, it's interesting. We... Um... Uh, Berkeley for me was a place where I kind of uh, rethought what I was doing as well. I was living in San Francisco, literally working as a designer out of my studio apartment. I would walk eight feet to work uh, over the dog, I like to say. And, uh, Back in the days when that was not so usual. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And I, I got offered to teach part-time at Berkeley at the Theater Dance Performance Studies Department. And uh, it was, I think that's what I got. I got hooked on teaching, doing that little, si at the time, which was a side gig. Um, I enjoyed it so much. I thought, this is great to teach about what you love. I recall a project, I don't want to sort of deter us too much from the topic at hand, but I remember a there's such a rich archive there. Um, my students designed a project on the Manhattan Project, and specifically Robert Oppenheimer and all wow. of his all of his um, effects and his articles or his uh, papers are all kept there in in sort of uh, rare collections. And we went in there and looked at original telegrams uh, from from Los Alamos, which just blew me away. It was amazing. To sort of see his holding history in your hand was literally what was happening to us then. So, um, but yeah, re remarkable, beautiful university too. Um, uh, Professor Anazu, same question. Yeah, so I grew up uh, in a military family, and so we moved every two or three years. I lived all over the country. And for college, I thought I wanted to be a doctor, so I looked at some pre med programs and ended up at Duke University and uh, about a week into Duke realized that I did not want to be a doctor. <laughs> and, uh, but I was there on an ROTC scholarship and 
so I was I was required to major in engineering, and about a month into Duke, I realized I didn't really like engineering either, but I was sort of <laughs> stuck with it. Uh, the deal was they were paying for college, but I had to major in engineering, and so I ended up finishing out the engineering degree. Uh, it was never really my cup of tea, but um, it is what it is, and then at the end of college, uh, knowing that I was, uh, I'd just been commissioned into the Air Force, and thinking I was going to be an engineer for the Air Force and desperately not wanting to do that, I fled to law school as an escape mechanism, knowing nothing about the law either. I didn't have any lawyers in the family, never really thought about law school. I just knew it wasn't engineering. Uh, so I got to law school, and um, was, I was a pretty mediocre law student, actually. But, um, but toward the end of law school, I started doing some independent study work, real, more at the intersection of law and theory and theology and really loved that and that was maybe the first time in my life where I, I started thinking of this this idea of academic reflection or deep writing is really something that I love so I, I kind of tucked that away and then went from law school to fulfill my military service requirement was which was at the Pentagon and I spent four years as a military lawyer at the Pentagon ended up loving legal practice too I loved to litigate cases I loved to think about law and legal issues. And so toward the end of that time, I was starting to put together the idea that uh, I, I like this deep writing and deep thinking, and I really like the law. And so I, th I, I was thinking maybe law teaching would be a good avenue, but I, I had to do, uh, because I've been kind of a mediocre law student, I had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, re recovery to do. So I ended up going back to school for a PhD, which not all law professors have, but in my case, I kind of needed did my PhD in political theory, and along the way started focusing on this area of the right of assembly, which I mentioned earlier, and that really kind of became my my core academic focus. And it was enough of an unexplored area. I mean, one of the, you know, I think everyone who goes to graduate school is always looking for what's the thing to write about that no one else has touched. And it turns out most people have touched most things, but for whatever reason, I stumbled upon the right of assembly, one of the five rights in the First Amendment, and nobody had written about it in this country in 40 years, <laughs> which was astounding to me. But, uh, but it, 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 may, it ended up being a great dissertation topic, which then, because of its relative unexplored nature, put me into a lot of different academic conversations and sort of set the path for my early academic career. Hmm. And then how did you come, uh, come find your way to WashU specifically from if I pick up the, the story. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I'd finished graduate school. I was teaching at Duke in this visiting position. I, I don't think I'd ever heard of WashU. <laughs> and it just so happened that somebody had just come from WashU maybe the year before to Duke's faculty and happened to know that WashU was in the middle of a search that was interested in someone doing First Amendment work. And so he kind of played matchmaker and I mean the, the law hiring process is pretty convoluted and it doesn't really work in that one-to-one -one way but from the start there was at least a sense that WashU should be looking at me and I should be looking at WashU and then it ended up working out which was great um, I we didn't know anyone in St. Louis all uh, my wife's family is all in North Carolina my family is in Colorado so St. Louis is kind of yeah. smack in the middle of nowhere but we really liked what we <laughs> saw about WashU and, and uh <laughs> And made the made the leap and and have enjoyed it here. Got it. We got to sell St. I, Louis. I, 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 
just kidding. Well, I, I don't think this is going to go on the cover of the admissions bulletin, John. <laughs> Moss, who says he had never heard of WashU, and it's in the middle of nowhere. Well, hold on a second. Okay. I mean, geographically, Geogra- nowhere between Colorado and North Carolina. So yes. it's, this is true. It's 811 miles from my in-law's house and 807 miles from my parents' house. So it's, it's oh, in, wow. in that wow. sense. <laughs> you can edit this part out if you want. We love no. St. Louis. <laughs> You've done the math already. That's amazing. I like that. Um, that's so that's fascinating. Okay. So, uh, I think that's the first time ever I'll have to do my research, but the first time ever anyone has sort of sequenced fled to law school as those four words in a row like that, <laughs> I've never heard of anyone fleeing to law school. Um, but that's kind of, that's kind of fascinating. I know, uh, professor Nazu, your work has been, um, particularly relevant lately, I guess you're writing as I, I follow you uh, a number of different ways and uh, not in weird ways, just like on Twitter. I mean, um, but, uh, I was wondering who that was walking, right. walking behind me the other day. Exactly. With the sunglasses and the baseball cap, that was me. Um, uh, but, you know, particularly uh, prescient lately has been this discussion about the, the right of assembly versus COVID. Uh, do you want to speak a little bit about that, about your writing in that area? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of um, my recent writing has been more public facing. So I've been writing a few pieces for the Atlantic and other venues like that and speaking to NPR and those sorts of news outlets. And I mean, the, the, the questions of protest are sort of front and center right now as we're recording this podcast. And uh, some of it relates to churches, some of it relates to non-religious businesses that want to open or health clubs and gyms uh, or restaurants and all, I mean, everyone is recognizing on the one hand these extremely urgent health concerns and on the other hand these economic concerns and these liberty concerns and in the middle of that is sort of what what do we make of, of people's right to gather and to gather for what purposes economic political protest religious social and all of these questions are massively complicated by the nature of this pandemic from a health level and how it changes really day to day from the localized and uh, state level approaches to some of these policy decisions and then from different laws that exist at state and local level. So it's, it's actually, it's quite a complex set of legal issues and it's real, it's worth taking the time to try to get right because the, the, the issues on either side could not be higher. Yeah, right. Like, literally life or death. <laughs> um, right. Right. And and part of your uh, course description I have in front of me kind of touches uh, on that, if I understand it correctly. You mentioned these current debates and the issues that frame them are interwoven in the American story. In fact, their story of religious liberty in American history sheds light on the very meaning of this country as a political experiment in democratic pluralism. Um, uh, the the debates we're talking about were the ones that Professor Valeri uh, pointed out, you know, about uh, cake bakers, uh, you know, being permitted or to refuse services for a gay wedding and uh, churches being able to fire its ministers for any reason. Um, but also, I, I would think that uh, our current situation might might come into play as you're adapting your course uh, in the fall. Is that fair to say? I'm sure we'll have plenty of examples to draw from from these last few months. And then, you know, to tie it to the course itself, when we when we think about massive disagreements and really kind of the political animosity that we, we saw well prior to the pandemic, but we're also seeing playing out here, 
what's helpful about this particular course in the historical perspective is looking back and seeing how how much of uh, similar political divisions and heated disagreements existed uh, throughout American history. And to, we, we think today, you know, what's the big deal between a bunch of white Protestant men disagreeing with each other? But, you know, back in the day, they were killing each other over these differences. So it was a big deal. And then we have to learn what we can from how they worked through those issues and, and see if we can apply some of those lessons to the current context. Certainly. Um, so this is a, a part of the podcast I like to get to where I, I ask you um, if you could ta take a time machine uh, back to your early undergraduate career, uh, what might you, what bit of advice might you whisper in your own ear as you're a first year student entering college um, as a, a bit of advice that you might lend yourself? Um, Professor Valeri, do you want to go first? Um. Yeah, this is a very interesting thought experiment um, <laughs> because, as John will be quick to point out, I have much further to go back in my memory than he does. Oh. <laughs> His time machine is going to take a little longer. <laughs> I think they call that an own goal. I think that's an own goal. The advice, let's say, that I would give me, um, I would think... Uh, to give myself the freedom to uh, really fall in love with an area of study that really interests me and engages me and uh, uh, to to realize that uh, jumping with both feet into the stream uh, of a field of study is very rewarding and very rich and that uh, I, I did not need to fret about how I was doing with grades or how I was doing with uh, performance or how I was doing with social reputation, to kind of let those things go and just be engaged uh, will, will provide, in, in a field of study, will provide not only friendships and relationships, but meaningfulness and uh, vocation in the midst of that. Hmm. That's the advice I would give myself. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought, really is. Yeah, it, it kind of touches on what my students have heard ad nauseum. So y'all, if you're listening, you can mute for a moment. But I tell my students that uh, it's not about how intelligent are you, which is the prompt they've been given for 18 years. It's how are you yeah. intelligent? And the difference of, of those words is just makes, I think, all the difference. How are you unique? How are you, what interests you? It's time to sort of take, a, take the time to find your passions. Um, yes. And, yes. And in my case, across disciplines, <laughs> which I'm always promoting yeah. interdisciplinary. Well, that's a, that's a lovely turn of phrase. Well, Not how intelligent are you, but how are you intelligent? I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, for the lawyers listening, I stole that from Ken Robinson, but okay. <laughs> Thanks for the attribution. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, how about you, Professor Nazu? Yeah, so I give a different answer the first time we did the podcast with Professor Laker, uh, so I'll, yeah. I'll change it up and give a, another thought here. Good. And I think that is to, to take, be willing to take classes that at the intersection of your passions and what you can can glean, glean from a little bit of research are going to be good and challenging teachers, but take the classes that are going to push you 
as hard as, as you can go intellectually, but also in terms of the work and the writing. And, um, you know, don't settle for just just kind of a slate of medium difficulty classes. Take a few hard ones that are really going to challenge you. I don't think I learned this lesson until graduate school, but I remember taking a few classes in graduate school with, with uh, a, a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas who became a a mentor and a friend, and Stanley's approach to classes was, was you had to basically read a semester's worth of material before the class started. <laughs> so he would say, you know, if, you're, if you want to take this class, make sure you've read these five massive books, and then you can uh -huh. jump into the class. And, and I, I thought, I mean, I'm, so I, I don't do that to my students, right? So don't, no one should yeah. freak out about that. But, but there, there, the, the sense there is it, sometimes it takes a lot more work than you even think you're going to need in order to grasp something it ends up being really important with the depth that you want to get it as a student. And I think a willingness, you can't do that with every class, you're going to, but, but a willingness to discern and seek out a few classes that are you're going to go into overdrive with and really dig down into. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that. That's a great, a great sort of uh, companion answer to your earlier podcast answer. I like that. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah. Years ago, I took a high school class. It was a government class in high school, and it was... Um, I'll never forget the first day of class. Uh, our teacher was H. Jack Woods. Um, he uh, began class by reciting his resume. He spent 29 years on the Texas State Legislature, another seven in the federal, uh, on the federal side. Um, and after reading that, he said, I don't have to be here. And I am here because I want to, do, to pay it forward. And from that moment forward, everyone in class felt that it wasn't an onerous thing to take that class. It was a privilege to take that class. Mm. And it, it just changed the whole dynamic. And I say that in this context because I believe it's really a privilege for, for our students to be learning from both of you and to, to sort of realize how lucky it is. I believe 7% of the world's population, only seven in every 100 people actually have the opportunity to go to college. And, um, you know, it's a responsibility of our students to... Uh, really recognize that that's a privilege that many, many, many other people don't even have, even to set foot on a campus or uh, in these days, a virtual campus. Um, but, but thank you for both of those answers. Those are great. Professor Valera, you might also whisper in your ear that in the future, you're going to have a landlord named John Anazu. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, young, so young Mark Valeri will have to spend a lifetime preparing for that. <laughs> so yes, yes. Be be prepared to face legal obstacles at every at every phase. I when when we were when we were uh, doing this long distance, uh, renting this house, uh, we had done this a couple times in the past, and it was just coming to a, a if you will, a, a, an informal gentleman's agreement. Well, we had this lease sent to us from John. You know, a fifteen-page lease. <laughs> is this true? No, it was actually seven yeah, pages. It's, it's seven the pages. Trust but verify principle, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, um, I I love your story about um, both both your stories about being in, in, in how you got inspired, and uh, I recall going to Berkeley when I was at Berkeley, taking courses that had two or three hundred students in massive lecture halls mm -hmm. and absolutely loving it. I know we don't do education that way these days. And I know that, that, uh, that we have different mindsets in the digital age and, and 
makes attention spans and uh, what what pulls people in a little different. But I recall two classes in particular at Berkeley, massive lecture courses with, you know, a little army of TAs grading our work. But these lectures that just lifted my spirit and my soul and drove me really hard, uh, Hans Sluga, a philosopher who talked about ancient philosophy in him, the final lecture, you know, him walking out on literally on stage and there was just a stool there huh. and him talking for 50 minutes and having us all spellbound. Wow. Um, it was this, this, this to me is, I, I really, you cannot make this the whole experience. You cannot make this the chief experience. But that sense that we are there to incite high and deep thoughts yeah. in students and, and, and say that it does not always have to be. And here, I'm not sure John and I differ on this. I mean, I think we're compatible. We're friends. And, but I think the abstract, the theoretical, the high-flown is very helpful many times. And it does not always have to have a political payout. Uh, it does. It, 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 it's almost invidious sometimes, the way uh, we we need to think that what we're doing has to have a political social application today. Mm-hmm. I don't think John would disagree with me on that. But oh no, I totally agree. And in fact, I mean, you know, the reality of higher ed is there are a lot. Not not a lot, some teachers in higher ed are just ideologues, right? They're just trying to. Mm-hmm. shape their own view of the world and their students. And, and I, I'm not, you know, I, th- I think a course like ours is going to make you think about your priors, whatever they are. It's going to push yeah. you with the best possible arguments on the other side of really hard issues. That's what I love about the law. That's what I love about this course. And, you know, if you, you'll come away from this course hopefully recognizing greater complexity to a side or an argument that you might have totally dismissed uh, before. And, and if that if that happens, that's a win, and that's part of what I think learning and real education is. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I, maybe it's a testament to the interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary lenses we're looking at this from, but uh, P- Professor Valeri, when you were telling your story there, I, I, was, I was thinking from a theater nerd side of things. That's a, a, a testament to the, uh, the power of storytelling. That it, without, it puts people like me and, you know, who design sets out of work, but the power of just, a, just one person <laughs> speaking with no set and, you know, uh, it just, uh-huh. it's, it's incredible. There's a, a, um, a theater artist named Mike Daisy who does this very same thing with a table and a glass of water. He can tell the most compelling <laughs> stories and, you know, you're just sucked in. But I might leave you with a quick little Berkeley story, if you don't mind. It's a, I was in Zellerbach Hall uh, designing yes. a big production of Bacchae. And uh, uh, we I, were... A little, little brief insert. Yes. I... I worked at Zellerbach Hall taking tickets at concerts and plays. Did you really? Nice. Yeah. I was designing, <laughs> as a faculty, you know, teaching there, I was hired to design this, this epic production of the Bacchae. So lots of Greek chorus yes. numbers and things. And we had a fog cue that uh, triggered the fire alarm to go off in the theater. And, uh, and, I, and of course, we all had to evacuate. And we, sadly, we theater artists experience this all the time. It just happens all the time. We're like, oh, gosh, we, we did this again. Oops. Um, and we go outside, and uh, 
wait for the fire trucks to arrive. And my friend, Chris Houston, who's a sound designer and composer, brilliant, brilliant composer, uh, he's sitting there on the steps of Zillerbach Hall with an audio recorder. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, shush, shush, shush. And I was like, what are you doing? And he said, I'm recording the sirens as they get closer to us because I know they're going to come here. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. he, was, he was trying to get the sound cue he wanted where you know he knew he might need someday of sirens approaching <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh he, he didn't quit working he just was decided to to collect a little bit of research for himself but um this awesome. has been delightful i really really thank you for your time this morning and um an opportunity for students to get to know you and get to know everything about your class i think we we come away from this knowing a lot more about that course and hopefully students will uh register and enroll thanks for having us rob great to talk to you thank yeah, you yeah excellent rob thanks thanks for doing this thank you both okay take care bye john <laughs>